This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God? Come what may. If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. What would you say to somebody who asked you what the Bible is? Well, you could say that it's God's holy word composed of 66 books written by more than 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages. But what if the question was this? What's the Bible about? Could you answer that question in a sentence? Because that's an even more important question in some ways and one that could change the course of an unbeliever's life for eternity. And we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Mark Young. He is president of Denver Seminary, professor for Our Daily Bread University, and has served as professor of world missions and intercultural studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And today we'll be talking about his book called One True Story, One True God, What the Bible is All About. Mark, it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Janet, for having me. Sure thing. I I thought it was interesting. You told an anecdote at the beginning of your book where you were on an airplane and somebody asked you this. What was your response to this person who was sitting next to you when you were asked what the Bible is all about? Well, mercifully, I don't actually remember what I said to him that day. Uh, I pray that somewhere along the way, Jesus and redemption got in the answer, but I don't remember what what I said. However, because I didn't know how to answer his question in a concise way, that spurred me to think about the question for a number of years, to teach about it, and then ultimately it brought this book into existence. Right. Well, that would throw you a little bit because you might be used to having a question about who is Jesus or what is the cross all about or something related to the character of God. But what is the Bible all about? I think there are a lot of Christians who might have a difficult time condensing it down to something small. How would you answer that question now when you're answering the question, what is the Bible all about? What would your answer be today? I would say it's a redemption story. It's the story how of how the one true God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to provide redemption for all sin, for all people. And through that, we can have life with him, life abundant. I like that. That's perfect. It's interesting, too. You know, in recent years, we've heard a lot about the word story as it relates to Christianity. What about those unbelievers who, when they think of the word story, they think of the word fiction? How do we disabuse people of the notion that when we're talking about the story of the Bible, we're talking about truth and we're talking about a plot that is real and a purpose that God has for his world and for you and me? That's a good question. When I was a little boy, actually, and I didn't tell the truth, my mom would accuse me of telling a story, That's right. the language that she used. But I think the answer to that question would be, if I were talking with someone, which I do regularly outside the faith, I would say all of us live by some story. In other words, we've put together in our mind a story of whether there's a God, how the world came into existence, how God relates to us as humans, and does the life that we're living have some meaning or purpose? Is it headed somewhere? Right. So we all live by some story. In academia, we call that a narrative, a grand narrative. 
And when we get people to think about the fact that they are, in fact, living by a story, then they say, you know, that's true. I do put things together in some sense, some ordered sense that leads from somewhere to somewhere. Yeah, that's true. When you're talking about the big story of the Bible, that overarching big story of the Bible, as you just described, you also point out that there are smaller stories making up the big story of the Bible. And I guess we could break those down into hundreds of different stories. But which smaller stories would you highlight when you're talking about those that make up the big story? Good question. So I would always begin with the creation story, where the Bible begins, right? Right. If we don't establish the fact that God has created all things, and certainly that's a disputed fact with various worldviews, but the Bible just starts there. It doesn't apologize for it, doesn't even try to defend that fact. It just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I'd start with the creation story. And then, of course, I would go to the story of why we don't enjoy the presence of God the way he designed us to enjoy him. And from that story, then I would move to the solution to the problem, which is the fact that God has stepped into human history to redeem humanity from their rebellion, from their sin, so that they can have life with him. And then I would tell the end of the story, when all that God has designed for humanity because of what Christ accomplished in his return we will enjoy him forever. Wonderful. That's wonderful. So when we're looking at the early chapters of Genesis, obviously what we see is God creating all that is and declaring it good. And this is prior to the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. What are the big takeaways from creation? The fact that we're understanding God is ruler over his universe, that he is the one who controls the world, that he is the one who sets the stage for the rest of our lives and and creates us in his image image, what what would you pick out of the creation story that sets the stage for the rest of the Bible? The creation story is very intentionally designed to drive the reader to the climax of the story, which is the creation of humanity. And so I would focus upon the fact that when God creates humans, he creates them as his image. And I use that language intentionally, as his image. As his image, we are created to reveal and represent him throughout all the earth. When when people see us, they have an image of God. None of the rest of creation can claim to be that. Right. And then I would focus on the fact that humans are created not only not just as the image of God, we're created to have a relationship with God and particularly to worship God. That's the language of Genesis chapter 2, the language of the garden where we're, we're, allowed, we're called to till the garden, to tend the garden. And then I would say we're created also for one another. Yeah. So I would focus on what we are as God's created image, uh, as the focus of the creation story. Yes. All of that is so important because then when you understand what you've just said, it makes the fall that much more tragic. So focusing in on the fall of mankind into sin and how then we all inherit a sin nature from that point forward, contrast that a little bit. What do you see in the the contrast between those you know people who are created in God's image and as you say as his image then falling into sin? That seems to be the the situation that continues to confound people. How in the world could you have Adam and Eve in this perfect garden and then choose sin when they had it all? Great question. And I think the Bible is pretty clear about a a couple of things. Uh, At the end of Genesis chapter 2, 
where we read that they were naked and not ashamed. We we have all types of images, or all maybe not images is the right word, <laughs> but all, what does that actually mean, right? So yeah. the issue there is that they were naive. They were unaware that the presence of evil, that there was anything evil in creation. So I like to think about it like this. Imagine a, a child on a playground who's completely consumed by the joy of being on that playground, playing with the slide or the swing or as is often the case, picking up the dirt off the ground and playing with the dirt. But yet, circling that playground is a predator. The child is completely unaware that there's danger. And the way Genesis, the end of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is put together, there's some beautiful language there, play on words, that causes us to see that this predator is crafty enough to cause the humans to believe a lie. (laughs) And so they believe the lie that God is holding something back from them. Of course, metaphorically, that's the fruit. God's holding something from you. There's more to life than what God has given you. You just have to take what God has prohibited you from taking. And so they believe that lie. Uh, I think sometimes we we want to believe that uh, sin is something we just fall into or it's an accident in our lives. But the reality, Janet, is we run after sin by believing lies. Even today, we sin when we believe lies. And so by believing the lie that God had withheld the fullness of life from them, they chose, willfully chose, to rebel against God. Well, that's right. And there's so much more to talk about in that regard, as well as more from One True Story, One True God, the book from Mark Young. We'll go to a break. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. The Ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives and souls by meeting moms where they are and introducing them to their preborn babies through ultrasound. As soon as I saw that heartbeat, it was over. I cried the hottest tears I've ever cried, and I felt a fire in my belly and in my soul, and God touched me that day. He pierced my heart for my child, and I felt love. Preborn stands in the gap for abortion-minded women across America by providing free ultrasounds and the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. When a mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she'll choose life eight out of ten times. For your gift of $140 today, you can help rescue five preborn babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax-deductible. There's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com or call now 855-402-2229. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 
per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Mark Young, president of Denver Seminary, professor for Our Daily Bread University and author of the book. We're talking about One True Story, One True God, What the Bible is All About. And we were discussing the fall of man into sin, Mark, before we went to the break. And one question I had when you were talking about creation and then fall, what strikes me is so interesting in seeing Adam and Eve fall into sin is that here they had everything in the garden. They were created in God's image as his image the way you put it. And yet it it just seems instantaneous almost that when they're asked the question, did God really say and offer the temptation of you will be like God if you eat this fruit from the tree you're not supposed to eat from, that that was something that was propelling them. And, And that says something about us as well, right? Not just buying into lies, but also doubting God who is absolutely perfect and has nothing but good intentions for us as opposed to the serpent who has nothing but bad intentions for us. That's exactly right. The the lies of Satan, is, as Jesus points out, Satan lies by his nature. Yep. And so in his lies, he attempts to diminish God in our view, to take away from who God actually is. But I think it's really important, Janet, to point out when we talk about the fall, we typically use the word fall as if it were an accident, hmm. right? I slipped yeah. and I fell. Yes. And sometimes we think of our sin as an accident. That is a mistaken notion. We pursue sin. We do. We run after it because we think there's something better than the way God has designed us to live. Yeah, that's a great point. Maybe we should call it the rebellion. That would be a little bit more accurate, perhaps. Yes, I agree with you. This was made so real to me when I went to Auschwitz. I lived in southern Poland during the communist era in the city of Krakow. We were only 100 kilometers from Auschwitz. And I remember going there the first time. It's just one of the most stunning experiences a person could ever have. You see all of the evidence of some of the greatest engineering minds in the world, some of the greatest manufacturers in the world who put together a plant, so to speak, if you would, to kill people and to dispose of the bodies. And I remember after coming face to face with the reality that this wasn't just a crime of passion, this wasn't just something that happened. This was an intentional action by a group of people who believed a lie to destroy human life. And I asked myself the question, who could do such a thing? And the answer buckled my knees. I could. And I literally threw up. Oh, my. Yes. Yeah, that that's just so powerful. And, and you know, it, it seems very relevant as well, because it seems at this time in human history, there are a lot of people who are going in that deadly direction and that demonic direction in our own day. We're seeing it. I think, you know, growing up, I always said, how in the world could that ever have happened? That Holocaust, weren't there any people speaking up? Weren't there enough people to push back against the Nazis in order to stop it in its tracks? But when you have enough people believing a lie, how do you stop it except by the power of God? That's correct. Exactly. Yeah. And we have our own lies, we've believed, right? We as do. a nation. Yep. 
while that was happening, we also had groups of people chasing down black men and hanging them from trees. It's terrible. Yes, that's right. Well, when we're talking about redemption, which is the good news, the work of Christ, I I think it's so important for people to remember that it didn't just start in the Gospel of Matthew, that redemption was present and the foreshadowing of Christ's redemption is present throughout the Old Testament. What would you point to as some significant landmarks in the Old Testament that are pointing to the eventual coming of the Christ child and the Messiah that was promised to Israel? Right. You know, I I argue that the theme of the Bible, what the Bible is about, is God's redemptive mission. So redemption is the centerpiece of God's engagement with humanity. There are four great redemption events in the Bible. The first is the Exodus, where God rescues his people from captivity to Egypt and restores them to the land that he has promised them. The second great redemption event is the return from exile where God rescues his people from exile in Babylon and restores them to the place that he had created for them. The climactic event, the centerpiece of all human history is the third redemption event, and that's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, where sin, death, and evil are ultimately defeated. And then the fourth great redemption event is what we call the consummation. That's when Jesus returns and restores all of creation to what God established it to be. So at the beginning, you have God living in perfect harmony with humans, and at the end, you have humans living in perfect harmony with God. Mm. Those are, that is the great act of redemption at the end of the, of the story. That's going to be great. That's going to be so great. And, and you know, it's funny, one of the things I often reflect upon is how little emphasis we put on that consummation, that God will make all things new and that we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and the redemption of our bodies too. I mean, this is something that we don't talk about quite enough, I don't think, that, that at the return of Christ and the dead in Christ shall rise and the reuniting of body and soul that is really tied back to what Christ did for us as well, certainly. Absolutely, right. And so the resurrection is that great affirmation that Christ did, in fact, defeat sin and death and evil on the cross. But as as it so happens, not as it so happens, in the plan of God, we yet await the full realization of the defeat of sin, death, and evil. And that occurs when Jesus returns again. You know, I think part of the problem, Janet, is we we have we adopted in our history this view that everything that's physical is going to be burned up, right? Mm-hmm. And that all that's physical in and of itself is somehow is not good. It's the flesh, as to use the language of Paul. Right. But as you pointed out, the image in Revelation 21 and 22 is of a new heavens and a new earth that's physical, but physical without the marring of sin mm. in any capacity. I like to say it this way. Everything that's wrong in the world will be made right. Everything that's broken in the world will be made beautiful, will be made whole. And everything that's ugly in the world will be made beautiful when the new heavens and the new earth are established. That's right. That's right. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and his promise that that's all coming to pass. And I think that there's a little bit indicative, just as a side comment, of how Gnostic our thinking has become. If it's something physical, it must be something bad. Well, it was never our bodies that were the problem. It was our hearts and our minds and our souls in bondage to sin. And that's been the problem we could never solve for ourselves, as you point out. And that's why we need the redemptive work of Christ. That's correct. And Christ redeems it all. The resurrection of the body is, in fact, 
the rescuing of the human body from the effects of sin, from the effects of the fall. That's right. That's right. Now, one of the things that you pointed out in in the book is you're talking about Abraham and you're talking about God's chosen people. And it's so interesting. People can read it for themselves. But you touch on the importance of the Ten Commandments. Comment on that a little bit, because that that also has been some, I, I would say, in some quarters, not focused on very much in some Christian circles where we just say, well, you know, that was Moses and yeah, it was the Old Testament. But I mean, how much more evidence do we need that God's moral law is still God's moral law for us? Good. That's a great point. So when God creates a people unto himself, I, I think we ought to always remember that God does that not just for their sakes, but for the sake of all people. Right. So God chooses Abraham, not just for Abraham and his descendants' benefit. It's so that as they live in obedience to God, all of the nations of the earth can see the one true God, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something we have to remember as well. Our obedience to what God has commanded isn't just so that we'll have a better relationship with God. Our obedience to God's commands is so that we live out a testimony of who God is. Right. So as God creates a nation in Exodus chapter 19, I talk about Exodus 19 as like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the Nation of Israel. He creates them as a nation who, in living by His law, will present to all nations a different picture of the one true God, a different God than the gods of all the other nations. That's a great point. And that obedience to the law then creates a testimony of who God is, so that if the nations want to respond to Abraham's descendants, then they too can find the one true God. That's a great point. That is such a great point, because that goes back to the language that we see in the New Testament about being ambassadors for Jesus Christ and being witnesses for him. It's not all about only evangelism, but also how we obey the Lord. And Jesus's words about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Would you see that as tying into what you're saying about Abraham, that that's the application in our own day, that as we obey the Lord, we are a testimony to the world of who the one true God actually is? Absolutely. Our holiness, our obedience, our identity, who we are, all of that is wrapped up in God's desire to be known by all people. Mm. So so think about it this way, Janet. If we turned ourselves inside out, if we turned our relationship with God inside out, and we recognize that not only are we allowed to enjoy a personal relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Not only can we enjoy that, but in enjoying that and living consistently in that, we are representing and revealing to all who know us who God is and what it means to know Him. And remember what I said at the beginning, when we are created as the image of God, humans were created to represent and reveal God throughout all creation. So when we do that as followers of Jesus, we are living into what the very essence of of being human actually means. That's great. That's so true. And and really, that is what it's all about. The big story of the Bible is not only what we read in the pages of Scripture, but what we demonstrate in our lives as representing the one true God. That I mean, that really gives you more, I would say, motivation to live for the Lord in a life of godliness and obedience. Absolutely. And, you know, we are called to live as exiles, which is a very interesting concept. Yes. We lived overseas for a number of years. And I can tell you, when you are an outsider living in another country, special scrutiny scrutiny is directed toward you. 
well, what if we saw ourselves as exiles in our own nation, in mm. our own homeland, mm. because our citizenship is in heaven and we're, we're, we are the embodiment of the kingdom of God? How we live is being looked at and watched. Yes. And how we live and respond, especially when we're attacked, represents and reveals who God is in ways that a million servants sermons could never communicate. That's wonderful. Dr. Mark Young, thank you so much, Mark, for being with us. One true story, one true God. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, this is a very disconcerting poll that's just come out from the Public Religion Research Institute. I guess they do this American Values Atlas survey annually, and it was just released this week, showing that support for LGBTQ rights rose across the board. And some of these statistics are very disheartening. A sizable jump in the share of Americans who support allowing gay and lesbian couples to legally marry. After hovering in the low 60s for the past three years, support for same-sex marriage rose to 67% last year. That's a huge majority, 67% in 2020. And for the first time in its survey, according to Yahoo!, a slim 51% majority of Republicans supported so-called gay marriage. To me, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. And I'm going to be talking with my friend Stephen Black about this uh, later on this week. But I, I really am stunned by this. And the, not stunned in the sense that I'm surprised. I'm not the least bit surprised because I see what's been going on, culturally speaking. And there's no side of the aisle, secular-wise, that is holding the line uh, completely. It's just, it's too overwhelming. You know, you have LGBTQ plus activists who, who have an inordinate amount of power and influence and cancelability and destructive ability when it comes to books they don't like on Amazon and all the rest. So it's no surprise people are scared to death of these people. And so they've convinced themselves in some quarters that they're, they just, it's just, it's just rights. It's human rights. I'm going to blow that apart, that argument apart here in a couple of minutes. But here's what's really upsetting about this. Back in 2007, when they did the same survey for context, only 36% of Americans supported so-called same-sex marriage. I mean, nothing like being rooted in eternal truth. How in the world can you go in a 13, 14-year period from understanding clearly that marriage is between one man and one woman to going, okay, yeah, whatever, because people aren't thinking. That's why people are reacting. And people are reacting to cultural mores and they're reacting to the fact that when you had that book, After the Ball, how the whole homosexual culture will normalize itself, that famous book back in the late 80s, it's come to pass. You just normalize it on TV and then you normalize it in commercials. That's where we are now. It's why I don't watch TV anymore. Half the time I turn on the TV, there's, you know, homosexual couple being featured like it's just totally normal. Just totally normal, just like, you know, whatever, you know, man and woman, you know, man and man. Yeah, what's the difference? 
So you're normalizing it in the media. You're normalizing it at workplaces. You're making everybody woke and social justice and intersectionality minded. And pretty soon you're just chipping away, chipping away. It's like taking some kind of pickaxe and going after a stone, you know, or a mountain where you just have rock and you're just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. The only thing that can counteract that chipping is if you have an equal and opposite reaction, in my view, in the form of Christians standing up for the truth. And there are Christians who have been standing up for the truth. But to me, this presents an incredible failure of Christians to stand firmly on the word of God and insist with courage and conviction that this is the way God created human beings to be complementary, biologically speaking, and to be union, you know, as a union in a marriage and procreative, that the purposes of marriage were not only to represent Christ in his church, but in a biological reality, that there's a union there and an ability to create a family that is not present in any other form. So this isn't hard, folks, but we haven't had that equal and opposite reaction in many cases. And now we're seeing it, the chickens come home to roost, if you want to say it that way. Because if the Republican Party continues to go in this direction, and I have no doubt that it will continue to go in this direction, where does that leave Christians? Where does that leave Christians? Are you going to vote as most evangelical Christians do for a party or a candidate who's on board with a fake form of marriage that is sexually immoral? Are you going to go that route or are we going to keep everything to the pro-life issue? You can't keep everything to the pro-life issue. And if you're not standing up for morality and for God's design of marriage, you know, you're failing as a Christian. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to say it that way. How in the world can we not be standing up as the body of Christ and saying this is just wrong? Why haven't there been more of us? And I know I go on and on and on about this. Here's a worse statistic, though. Uh, I mentioned that you have 51% of Republicans supporting so-called gay marriage. The numbers among independents are 72% and Democrats 76%. But now listen to this. The only group where support for so-called same-sex marriage dropped below 50% was evangelical Protestants, regardless of race. Okay, yippee, except listen to these numbers. 43% of white evangelicals support so-called same-sex marriage, 41% of Hispanic evangelicals, and 49% of black evangelicals back so-called gay marriage. It's five-alarm fire here, folks. We have drifted from God's word tremendously. We are not rooted in God's word. We are ashamed of God's word. That's all you can conclude when you look at these numbers. We are ashamed of the word of God, and that should bring shame on us not on God himself. God is clear as day in his word that homosexuality is sin, the lusts and the behavior, just as immorality in a heterosexual context is sinful as well, that you have adultery and fornication and and lust. And of course, that's wrong for everybody. But we don't really care, do we? We don't really care. And I think about John 15 Where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's that's the problem. Christ's church is not abiding in him. We are not producing the fruit that Christians ought to produce because we're not abiding in Jesus Christ as he instructed us to do. And we can't do anything without him. 
and we can't do anything without his word. And it grieves me to the core. And whatever happened to the principle that we understand from God's word, I, the Lord, do not change. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. And I could go on and on and on. Eternal truth doesn't change, folks. I don't know how in the world you could go from 14 years ago to today and say, yeah, I'm just going to do a big flip-flop on the issue. What changed? You changed. If you can make that big of a shift in morality in 14 years, I wonder how much morality you really had to begin with. Too many episodes of Modern Family, perhaps, or you enjoyed the Ellen Talk Show too much, and it just seemed, well, you know, that seems mean. To not allow people who have alternative lifestyles to have just as close relationship as I do with my opposite sex spouse. I mean, people think like this, and it's not true. It's not rooted in God's word. And I just, it just really, really grieves me. And this is very interesting how this comes home to roost. There's a story in USA Today you might have seen where this writer, this writer is just uh, something else, Hamal Javeri coming out against Oral Roberts University, which has been doing very well in March Madness, uh, and coming out against Oral Roberts University because they're wildly out of touch on the gay issue. Oh, okay. Well, that should affect whether or not you can play basketball, right? Because why in the world would you want some kind of archaic moral dinosaurs playing basketball? That's just wrong. And we as a society cannot tolerate dinosaurs playing basketball. Of course, we can tolerate men who think they're women playing basketball as long as they're on a women's team. That's fine. But those nutty Christians, those nutty people who believe that male and female is God's design for marriage— Oh, you just, we can't tolerate that as an open society. She says, and this is via Newsbusters, it's a relic of the past and completely incompatible with the NCAA's values of equality and inclusion. They call her, (laughs) Newsbusters, a moralistic referee who calls fouls on ORU for a student code of conduct that bans profanity, social dancing, and wearing shorts to class. And she demands that fans protest Oral Roberts for its homophobia as the Golden Eagles advance in the tournament. Guess what? You know what? People who actually have conviction on this issue really don't care about your protests. We need to care less about protests and more about the fear of the Lord. Because I'll tell you what, in the final analysis, your fear of the Lord is going to matter a whole lot more than what some drippy USA Today opinion writer thinks uh, as far as your archaic values. Well, the Bible doesn't evolve. So... You're just going to have to accept that. There's more to come on Janet Meffer today. Don't go away. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to his owner, one of only a few in that church to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because he does doesn't own one. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. 
We're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given right now will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Some time ago, I had interviewed Robert Riley, who's just such a great thinker, on his great book, Making Gay Okay. I still believe that's one of the best books out there on the issue of homosexuality. I'm sure Amazon is banning it as we speak. But if you can get a hold of it, you ought to read it. Because one of the points he makes in there is what we use different parts of the body for show us what reality is. And I'm, I'm, Going back to this poll that's come out from the Public Religion Research Institute showing the majority of Republicans now support so-called same-sex marriage and almost half of evangelicals agree. I mean, how in the world do you have a church set apart from the world when you have those kinds of numbers? This is a no-brainer, folks. This is not hard. And it doesn't have anything to do with not caring about people. Actually, you're not caring about people if you're not willing to talk about sin and what it is and the consequences of sin. Maybe we need a little bit more William Booth in our attitudes where we care about people going to hell, all people going to hell, not just some who commit some sins, all people who go to hell. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if we went across the spectrum in a lot of these evangelical churches to find out how many people actually believe in everlasting hell anymore and who gets to go there and who doesn't get to go there or is made to go there. Uh, We don't talk about these deep things. It's unpleasant. And, you know, we have cool worship to jump up and down to. So we don't want to talk about things like hell. Let's just go the Rob Bell route. Maybe we can just talk about "Eh, hell. It's so outdated. Yeah, I, I don't want Rob Bell. I want the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust him and his word. And he is the word. And in the beginning was the word. And not anything that wasn't made was, you know, it was everything was made by him. And he is the eternal Uh, Same essence of the Father. He's the second person, the Trinity, and I trust God. Uh, At any rate, speaking of Robert Riley, there is this interesting article I pulled out. It's actually from the Catholic World Report, but it's on a subject that I think is important for people to realize. And I haven't talked about this in actually several years, but I'm going to revisit it because it's important. This was actually from an address that was given before the Obergefell decision came down in 2015. It was called the New Gnosticism of the Homosexual Movement. One of the definitions of Gnosticism is from Eric Vogelin, who was a German-American political philosopher, died in the 80s. And he defined it as claims of direct access to truth without the need for rational reflection. Hmm. 
Sound familiar? So this writer says, if Eric Vogelin were alive today, I think he would see the homosexual movement as a form of Gnosticism, a spiritually pathological, magical reconstruction of reality or of a second reality. Vogelin wrote that all Gnostic movements are involved in the project of abolishing the constitution of being with its origin in divine transcendent being. Does this seem too extreme a charge to bring against the homosexual movement? As the writer says, I'll attempt to show this is not about some sexual peccadillo that we can wink at and push off into a corner. It is a lie about humanity itself. Lesbian advocate Paula Edelbrick proclaimed that transforming the very fabric of society and radically reordering society's view of reality is the goal of the homosexual movement. This is typical Gnostic rhetoric about constructing a substitute reality. Pretty prophetic, isn't it? Now, this is before... The Obergefell decision, which was 2015, we're only talking six years ago. It's all coming true. Vogelin said that Gnosticism has produced something like the counter principles to the principles of existence. And insofar as these principles determine an image of reality for the masses of the faithful, it has created a dream world that itself is a social force of the first importance in motivating attitudes and actions. Such counterprinciples are active and evident in every aspect of the promotion of the homosexual cause, and we have seen the power of its social force as it moved at the time against what was going on regarding Indiana and its protections of religious liberty. As a society, we have moved from the point where the rationalization for homosexual misbehavior has been accepted as normative to the point where that rationalization will now be imposed and enforced legally and by social forces at large on everyone. If you speak out about this, you most likely will lose your job or your business and most certainly your social standing. You may be sued. You will become an embarrassment. These have become new forms of censorship with a strong dose of self-censorship already at play. As John Stossel, the libertarian journalist, put it, this movement has moved from tolerance to totalitarianism. Well, of course, look, the House already passed the Equality Act again. I have no reason to think that thing won't become law, uh, although there is a bit of a roadblock in the Senate at the moment. Praise God for that. This is where it's going. It's totalitarian. And it's, it, this was said years ago before Obergefell. People who are thinking straight on this issue saw it. Vogelin analyzed the Nazi movement as a form of Gnosticism. I do not think it is a stretch to point to Nazi Germany in 1935 as an analogy to current events and their similarly Gnostic nature, the author says. That is when the Nuremberg Laws were passed, stripping Jews of their German citizenship and forbidding marriage between non-Jews and Jews. No doubt there were still many fine and upstanding people in Germany at the time, but from then on, they had to keep their mouths shut about the Nazi racial superiority teachings because they were state law. I'm sure there were many people opposed to the race theory of history who said to themselves, as people do today regarding homosexual so-called marriage, well, this is a losing issue. Let's leave it alone and move on. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, 51% of Republicans, right? 51% of Republicans. Going back to this article, they were probably too frightened to consider what they were moving on to. Just as people today avoid thinking about the consequences of the complete denial of reality involved in homosexual so-called marriage. Anyone who thinks that we're involved in a denial of reality any less profound than that of 1935 Germany is kidding themselves. 
Success for the homosexual dream requires the obliteration of the real and the removal of those who insist on the existence of reality. Well said. Gnosticism does not accept the evidence of reality. It is not a matter of what Gnostics do not know, but of what they refuse to acknowledge. Composer Igor Stravinsky wrote that the old original sin was one of knowledge. The new original sin is one of non-acknowledgement. It is the refusal to acknowledge anything outside the operation of the human will most especially the good toward which the soul is ordered. The Gnostic is not interested in conforming his mind to reality, but in conforming reality to his wishes. And as we know, this is not just true of the homosexual marriage issue, so-called, but also the transgender movement. We don't really care if the six foot three guy wearing a dress looks ridiculous. We have to conform the women's sports teams to his dream which is, I'm a chick, even though everyone's looking at him like the kid in the parade of the emperor had no clothes and saying, but wait, you're a dude. You're a guy. What are you talking about? Why do we all have to conform to your bizarre view of reality? Why do we have to conform to your dream? But it started with the homosexual so-called marriage issue, didn't it? That's where the dream, as they would put it, became reality. But that's all it is. And it's a bad dream. It's a nightmare dream. It's going to become even more of a nightmare As time goes along, if more Christians don't start standing up, not just on the transgender issue, the transgender issues sprang out of the LGBT movement and the T was added. But first, it was a homosexual movement. That's where things went off the rails when it came to Gnosticism and the transgender movement just took it one step further. So that's what's going on. People are actually trying to call something that is not reality, reality. And I really appreciate the part of this article where it's talking about the fact that you can't take two men and call it marriage in the same way that you can with a man and a woman. Because first of all, you can't have the same sort of biological union, obviously. And second of all, you can't create children out of that union. So everything that marriage is and everything that marriage was designed by God to to be, which is to create families and to have parents in the same home raising the children that they biologically created— understanding that some families also have adoptive children, that doesn't even exist for two men or two women. That's not, a, that's not what's going on because they can't create and they can't have the union that a man and a woman have. And we're just operating in this unreality and we're thinking there aren't going to be any consequences. There aren't going to be any temporal consequences Even though we're seeing the temporal consequences beginning to spring up, we don't think there's going to be any slippery slope. Of course, there's a slippery slope. And most of all, we don't believe there are any eternal consequences because that would just be mean. I reject all of that. I reject all of that as a Christian because the Lord is God. We are not, and we cannot take our wishes and somehow twist them into an alternative reality. Gnosticism, recall Christians, is a heresy. It's a heresy, and it goes back to the early centuries of Christianity, and the church repudiated it. All we're seeing is the return of Gnosticism in a new day by a father of lies who's taking uh, taking advantage of new generations of people who are easily duped. We can't be duped. We need a revival. We need a reformation. We need to return to the Word of God like never before, because tough times may be ahead. We have to stand with Christ just as He went to the cross for us. It's never been more important. We have to leave it there. Thank you for being with us, as always, and we'll see you next time. 
This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.